You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on the paranormal. Now looking at the biblical perspective. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. to see you. I was wondering how many of us have ever been to a conference on a ship before. Has anyone else been besides me? Yeah, I've, I've been to a few. This is, it's actually quite nice that it's not moving, and it's not even that noisy. Um, but, but a good morning, and, and thank you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, from ARS to speak. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks to the board. And this is uh, definitely an unusual conference. And uh, there are a lot of people who didn't come who were invited, but no one thought, no, that's just too ordinary for me. It's a run of the mill. This is one you're gonna, it's on what? <laughs> what is it about? I think I took my assignment seriously. Um, I read books. I read articles. I saw a couple extra movies. I, usually, I only see movies on airplanes I'm, uh, because that, 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 you know, maybe once a year in a cinema. But I see a lot on the airplanes, and, I, and one of them I saw was the right with Anthony Hopkins. How many of you saw that one? The Right. It's about an exorcism in, in Rome. And I also saw Paranormal Activity, that low-budget but very well-done film uh, where the, oh my goodness, they get dragged away in the night. Uh, incredible. I really believe it's worth talking about the paranormal because these kinds of claims are worldwide. For example, this year, I'm speaking in 25 countries. By the way, if you want the, the update of the ministry, the teaching ministry 2010, there's a handout. You can look at it. If the talk is boring, just read that while I'm talking. But of the 25 countries I'm visiting this year, I believe only three of them are not saturated with claims of the paranormal. In other words, most countries absolutely believe in ghosts and spells, uh, hexes and so forth. That, that's, that's just part of human culture. It's worth talking about also because these things are really interesting. And I think they're great conversation starters. So we could even use that in evangelism. Well, if you're a Christian, one obvious way is, you know, how was your weekend? Fine. And what did you do? I was at a conference on the paranormal. And you ask people, what what do you think about that? Or in the case of an unbeliever, do you think there's anything on the other side? That's a very um, easy question to pose to someone. It's not uh, upsetting, and there's nothing uh, domineering about it. I think it's also worth discussing this topic because it actually does have implications. And whether you're a skeptic or at the other end of the spectrum, I think there's something to learn here. Actually, I would admit that I was probably more open to the supernatural before I became a Christian. Were you? Um... Perhaps I was a bit on the superstitious side. So what's happening? Am I losing faith? Am I becoming more skeptical or or more cynical? And this is a hard balance to strike in our own investigation because if we're running a certain risk here, if we're careless in the way we approach the supernatural, we can seem to contradict the principles that we actually stand for. We run the risk of undercutting the sacred ground on which we all stand. If we pretend to investigate without bias, distancing ourselves from the supernatural, then we may raise the question in people's minds, well, does he believe in the things of Scripture? Oh, you've explained away the angelic and the demonic. Do you actually believe in a God? And that's, there's a danger. So there's a balance there between credulity on one hand, where you just accept everything, without thinking, completely naive, and the other hand, where you just dismiss everything like a hardened um, atheist or agnostic. Obviously, we don't want to be at either end. The kinds of phenomena that we talk about, the kinds of phenomena that maybe you thought about when you decided to come, I think you could put them in three categories, hoaxes, natural, and supernatural or paranormal. Hoaxes, of course, are completely normal, but they appear paranormal. They appear that way. An example would be uh, things that an illusionist does, or card tricks. I know about 20 card tricks. I learned them about 20 years ago, and I don't know if I'll ever learn a 21st. But they, they can be impressive. Everyone knows it's not magic. Even our children know it's not magic. 
Our oldest is now 22, but I remember once when he was about five, and I was doing a card trick, and he said, and in front of other people, he said, oh, daddy, there's no such thing as magic. Well, I said, well, James, how am I doing it? He said, God's helping you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, kids, think about this stuff. Um, spoon bending. If, if the name Yuri Geller rings a bell. But th- these are just absolute hoaxes, and they've been uh, uncovered. The other things that are natural, but I wouldn't call them hoaxes. They're normal, but they appear paranormal. Uh, for example, walking on hot coals. You don't have to be a man of faith or someone who denies this world in order to take off your shoes and socks and walk across coals. Coals are a very poor conductor of heat. And if you keep moving, you'll probably be totally fine walking across a bed of coals. But it is pretty impressive, isn't it? Or I remember when I was about 13 or 14 years old, we saw a UFO. I, d- I didn't really believe in UFOs. This was a green orb. It was huge, and it was in the sky. Well, back then, and this was the early 70s, and don't ask me why, everyone would phone the radio station. You know, now we would we, we'd probably go t- online and we'd type in green sphere, UFO, and the date, or something like that, and you'd get information instantly. For some reason back then, we called the radio station. And they, and they said, everyone's phoning in. We don't know what it is. But the next day we found out it was a weather balloon. But I'll tell you, it was freaky. And anytime you see something in the sky you don't expect to be in the sky, and we all do from time to time, that, that gets us thinking, doesn't it? But it's not paranormal. That's absolutely normal. It's natural. But there's a third category. So these first two categories are similar, except one involves deception and the other one doesn't. And the third category is the supernatural, the paranormal, things that are paranormal, and they appear paranormal. I mean, they, they really do not look natural. Uh, for example, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sorry, uh, William Barclay, I think you got it wrong. They didn't just share their bread. There's a miracle there, the resurrection of Christ. It wasn't an illusionist's trick. Some people would think that, but in the more sober reflections on the resurrection, a different conclusion is reached. Paranormal means beyond the range of normal experience or beyond the range of scientific explanation. That's all that means. Okay. Few professionals study this at a serious level. I understand that in the United States right now, there are fewer than 10 scientists who study the paranormal on a full-time basis. Truth is, uh, I went to Duke, my first college, and they had recently uh, disestablished the Department of Paranormal Psychology. That was actually one of the departments in the university. But it doesn't go anywhere. How many of you saw the film Ghostbusters? Uh, Bill Murray and, you know, all those guys. Yeah, so Ghostbusters, they're holding these cards at the beginning. The pretty girl is trying to guess what it is. And, and uh, you know, it, it's um, people have tried all kinds of things. There isn't really a lot in it. However, how much would we expect to find trying to study things scientifically, as the Ghostbusters certainly did in every way? We cannot easily prove or disprove the paranormal any more than science can prove or disprove the Scriptures or even prove or disprove God's existence. Can you prove God's existence? Well, we can taste and see the Lord is good. We can can know there are levels of certainty. We can be convinced by lots of evidence. But can you ultimately prove that there's a God? Or isn't there just a little, at least a millimeter of space, of wiggle room, of a way to talk ourselves out of it? Paranormal could refer to all religious experience. Religious experience which attests to the existence of a reality beside the world we know and also to the existence of spiritual beings. So if you're saying, well, I come to this conference, I don't even believe in the paranormal, I I think I know what you mean. But in one sense, you're sounding like an atheist. You don't believe in any spiritual experience. My class will touch on nine different areas of paranormal claim. Now, if you're taking notes, all I would do you can fit it on one side, just number one to nine, or leave right on every other line. And if something strikes you, you can write it in the space. There's no test, so it's easy. Uh, some of these areas will be covered lightly. Others will be covered very lightly. I hope you'll find them all interesting, and then I'll make some concluding comments. The purpose of this class 
is to set the discussion into a biblical framework to stimulate us to think theologically. Whether or not my class is the key to the whole conference, you can decide later on. Actually, I think we really do need the perspectives of the other speakers. Uh, John will be talking about science. John Clayton will be looking at the paranormal, a scientific perspective. Uh, Coco and Foster Stanback, the paranormal, a psychological perspective. I really think we've got a much better chance to understand this stuff um, when we look at it from different angles. Well, the first area is uh, I'm going to talk about is aliens. All right? Have you had some experience in that area? Aliens. Aliens. In the Bible, if you're reading the Bible, it, uh, some, most versions talk about aliens, but it's not talking about that kind of alien. You know, it's talking about having compassion towards the alien, which impinges on the immigration debate. It has nothing to do with extraterrestrial life. Uh, this category, is it in the hoax category? Quite often, there are hoaxes. Is it in the natural phenomenon category? It can fall in there as well. Is it paranormal? I don't think so. Uh, though I had an interesting reflection when I was preparing. If an angel of God came today, you know, some people, they'd lap it up. We're going to angels in the next category. But if an angel of God came and wasn't obviously an angel, but someone knew it wasn't a human, how would that being be interpreted in our society? Probably as an alien. So this is very much in the press. Well, what is the evidence? Biblically, there's no evidence. They're never mentioned in the Bible. Scientifically, there is only ambivalent evidence. For example, the prebiotic conditions of uh, the presence of water on Mars or perhaps Europa. In the Middle Ages, people believed in pixies and trolls. Maybe you do too, but I doubt it. In our day, belief in aliens has become respectable. Hundreds of years ago, the Irish believed in leprechauns. Some still swear by it today. Uh, in most countries of the world, people believe in some kind of creature. But in places where Western education is strong, that's no longer fashionable. You're not likely to receive a promotion if you work in a university when you tell them that you believe in pixies and trolls. You know, yes, I've seen him. He's under the bridge, you know, and he wants to eat me up. And I tell him my brother is much bigger and fatter. That's not going to win you points. However, believing in ET, extraterrestrial life, has actually become fashionable now. It, it's been a craze at least since the 19th century. But now it's, it's not only fashionable, you, you, you can be charged of speciesism if you don't. Like, oh, so you're a Bible banger. You think humans are the apex of creation and so forth. Well, is it a problem for believers, this first area of uh, aliens? No, it's not necessarily a theological issue. People always ask, well, how would aliens be saved? Well, that, that question assumes they need to be saved, that they are morally fallen. It assumes that they have sufficient intelligence to rebel against God's moral order in the first place. In any case, the effects of the cross are cosmic. When we read Ephesians and Colossians, we see that everything in all of creation is reconciled through the cross to God. So if there is something out there, and they're advanced, and they're intelligent, and they're moral, and they've fallen, whatever that means to you, then okay, Christ will handle it. Do they pose a danger to us? Are they good or bad? That depends on whether they exist, whether they're moral, and whether they've run out of natural resources on their planet, or avatar-like are trying to colonize ours. Most things about our universe are not discussed in the Bible, and aliens is one of those. Most things about the cosmos are not discussed in Scripture, from dinosaurs to DNA, from Pluto to the periodic table, but the Lord has told us what we need to know. The Bible is primarily a book about relationship, relationship with God, and relationship with others. So what does the Bible say about Area 1, aliens? Nothing. Their existence or non-existence is not, properly speaking, even a biblical issue. Let's go on to area two then, angels. Angels. There are two reactions today to angels. And one, again, is the credulity. And in many circles, it is fashionable to believe in angels. And the other, of course, is scorn. It's dismissal of miracle and spiritual reality. Uh, the rejection of angels and, and angelology is common to the Enlightenment. Uh, and I, I have a a couple of quotes I found that I really like. One is Bernard Ram. If you studied interpretation, you may know his name. And he's talking about this, this very intellectual climate where it's not cool to believe in angels. Angels seem to intrude upon the scene like the unexpected visit of the country relatives to their rich city kinsfolk. 
you might put up with those people, but it's pretty embarrassing. Wayne Grintz, with Occam's razor in hand, enlightenment rationalists shaved off the embarrassing whiskers of supernatural beings from the modern cosmology. But as we all know, paranormal has entered through the back door. It's very big in our society. Spiritual beings have returned through the back door. What is an angel? Angelos in Greek, malach in Hebrew, fundamentally is a messenger. And there are a lot of passages in both Testaments where these messengers are human. I could give you a list if you need it, but I don't see any need to do it right now. And it's possible that the angels of the seven churches in Revelation are the messengers of the seven churches. They could be human. I guess I should note we do not become angels when we die, Matthew 22. When I was a little boy, I read a book called The Littlest Angel. It was about a boy who became an angel. He died. He became an angel. He dropped his crown, you know, because you have a crown and so forth. The Bible never says we become angels when we die. Um, in fact, it says we will not be like the angels, Matthew 22. Well, what is the nature of these beings? They're not really presented as male or female. And uh, I've never, uh, you know, looked closely at an angel, because as far as I know, I've never seen one. Uh, but uh, some have argued, like Billy Graham, that they're more or less genderless, some of them are named in the Bible, Gabriel, Michael, uh, you know, warrior of God, uh, who was like God. But if you go to the Old Testament Apocrypha, you'll find more names like Raphael and Uriel and Yeremiel. And in Jewish speculation, many more names. Angels can be good or they can be evil, as in Matthew twenty-two thirty, as in Matthew 25, 41. So there are two classes of angel. Apparently, some chose to become evil. They weren't created that way. In the Middle Ages, angels were ranked. They were the archangels, as mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4 or Jude verse 9, the chief angels. And most believe there were seven of them in all, though there was not total agreement on who was there. Elaborate, really elaborate angelic hierarchies were created in the Middle Ages. At any rate, angels' mediating work is done according to Scripture, though they will accompany Christ at His return. But you may ask, are they even real? To which a thoughtful Christian might ask, is God real? If you say, well, I don't believe in angels, what's next? Paul Tillich of Harvard, and I think he's a lot like Walter Wink. Have you read any of Wink's books on naming the powers and exposing the powers and so forth? Another quote. In our terminology, we can say that angels are concrete poetic symbols of the structures, symbols of the structures or powers of being. They are not beings, but participate in everything that is. They don't exist. Wink says they're the interior spirit of institutions. So if you give your allegiance to a nation or a family or an army or the Queen Mary, it doesn't deserve it. That's idolatry, and that's diabolical. It's a very clever way of looking at it. Of course, we read about the powers, the principalities, the rulers, the celestial beings, King James says the dignities. In places like Ephesians 6 and Colossians 2, we know they've been disarmed. Um, our warfare is really against them through the cross, through Christ. God shows his wisdom to the powers, Ephesians 3.10. So is it possible that they're just human beings, that, the angel, that the, these powers are, are, are just political powers? It could be, but they're described in Ephesians as being in the heavenly realms which is an odd way to describe especially a politician. Think of someone like Sarah Palin, you know, in the heavenly realm. Is that, is that what it is? Some say, again, that they are the interior spirits of earthly human um, institutions. For me, this is clever, but not convincing. When I first hit the idea, which was 15, 16 years ago, I was intrigued, and I bought the trilogy. I bought all three of Walter Wink's books, and I read them, and it was very interesting, and it made me think, and maybe that's like this conference. It's going to make you think, but I wasn't really convinced. I thought it was clever, but like some explanations, just a little bit too clever. The weight of biblical evidence and interpretation, I believe, supports the view that angels are real. So what does the Bible say about Area 2, angels? It says a lot. This is the opposite of aliens. Colossians 2.18, we are not to worship angels. Now, you know, some people, they have a paranormal experience, and what do they want to do with that experience? Well, some people are afraid, and they just want to forget it. But many people want to talk about it. They want to tell you their story, and it's kind of this attitude, can you top this? Oh, you saw a vision at night? Well, my cousin's sister saw Jesus at night. 
it was the Lord. Well, my dog had a dream about the second coming. And, you know, I mean, it's can you top this? And, and that's egotistical. It doesn't put the focus, the spotlight on the Lord. It puts it on us. And that's why Colossians 2 condemns that, among other reasons. And then you also have Revelation 19.10, where John the Revelator is very impressed by an angel. And what does he do? He falls down. And what does the angel say? Don't worship me. It's kind of like Acts 10, where uh, the first pope falls down before Cornelius. So what is, we mustn't worship them. They are just servants. Hebrews 1.14, they're servants. Now, we, we don't call people servants as much anymore in our society. But let's say today you had breakfast. If you didn't, I hope you still have some carbs so you're not going to uh, you know, stall out here. People were serving you if you had a waiter, right? There's a difference between being respectful to the waiter and falling down and worshiping the waiter. I mean, if you got down and on your knees and you know, Carlos, it's so wonderful to meet you, and this is great. Can I have your picture? I need to tell all my friends, and I'm going to write a book about you, and will you sign my autograph, my forehead? And, you know, this is the, you know, that, hey, I'm just a servant. You know, whoever is in charge here, I guess there's some, someone who's physically in charge of the Queen Mary, that would be cool. But you don't trip over yourself for a servant, and that's the point in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 2 says we are above the angels. We're above them. Also, that's another proof that humans do not become angels. It wouldn't really make sense that, that you went down a grade when you died, right, if we're above the angels. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3, one day we will even judge the angels. What exactly that means, I have only a tiny bit of an idea. We will judge angels. What? Wow. But beware sensationalism. I have lots of examples. I have lots of stories. Um, a sister in our ministry died last year. She was in a lot of pain. And so often people who are in a lot of pain take painkillers. And you know, painkillers, if they're psychotropic in some way, can make you see all kinds of things. Now, here's, here's what happened. At one point, she smiled. She, she was like in a sense, like in a rapture, in worship. I see angels, angels everywhere. They're so beautiful. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. But that's the part of the story that was spread around church. So-and-so saw angels Right before she died, she saw angels. They didn't tell the second part, which was a few minutes later. She said, whoa, I see aliens. They're aliens everywhere. What are you saying, Douglas, that the angels are aliens? No, I'm saying that her imagination was very, very active. Perhaps Foster and Coco will touch on the psychological aspect of that a little bit more. But, you know, we, in our sensationalism, we, we don't want to share details that disconfirm, uh, that, that kind of make our story less cool we grab onto things, and then they get passed on second and third hand. And I, I've been at, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I've been at some conferences where the speaker asked, how many have, have seen angels raise your hand? Now, I'm sure if you ask some Old Testament people to raise your hand if you saw an angel, some of them would actually raise their hand. But the point was, in Hebrews 13, people didn't recognize the angels at the time. And the way it's typically passed on, it's, it's, this is a modern kind of urban angel legend. I was at the bus stop. I was distracted. I was texting or talking to my friend, and I didn't really think anything about it. This guy came up. He was poorly dressed, and he was standing behind me, or he, he said a word, or he helped me with this or that, and then I turned around, and he was completely gone. That must have been one of God's angels. Well, if you know how the mind plays tricks and how, you know, we lose track of time sometimes... You know, he didn't have to disappear in a flash. He could have walked away. But those kinds of encounters are often portrayed as angelic among followers of Christ. And I think that doesn't probably help our credibility a lot. And besides, if I read Galatians 1 correctly, the angels have nothing new to offer us. Even if they did offer an update to the divine revelation, we are to reject it. And so that's what the Bible says about angels. Area 3, we're still in the A's apparitions and necromancy. Okay, how many of you know, know what necromancy is? Would you, would you raise your hand if you know what necromancy is? 
that actually helps me know how to pitch my class. Okay, and apparitions, appearances, especially of saints, or I guess it could be of Jesus, or especially the Blessed Virgin. Remember, in the New Testament, Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus and others after his death. So, in a, in a way, we all believe in appearances or apparitions in that sense. And, and maybe like me, you're tempted to mock the claims of apparitions. Certainly, traditional Christianity often claims apparitions. Places like Lourdes or Guadalupe, uh, which uh, my friend Arturo, who's here, took me to, but we did not see the Virgin in Guadalupe in Mexico, or in the former Yugoslavia, the town called Medugoria, where the Virgin Mary has been making many, many appearances. Um, I have a friend who helps me with the plants in y- our yard, and he is absolutely convinced that the Virgin Mary has appeared all of these times. Now, most people who are convinced have taken it secondhand. They didn't see anything, but they, heard, they knew someone who heard something. And I remember once I was in Korea, and uh, the, the church was reaching out to a man who was the head of the Sheraton, and, and, he wanted to, and he was a chef. Very interesting. Sat me down. We, he made an incredible lunch for me and my wife. And then he wanted to tell me about the appearances of the Virgin Mary. He was a very intelligent man. And so it doesn't mean you're not intelligent if you believe in this stuff. Unless a good explanation is given, and then you still believe in it. And then you've, then you've crossed over to being irrational. When we lived, um, talking about apparitions, when I was a young Christian and I was baptized in the 70s, I remember that it was another Mexican thing. By the way, this is not an, a Latino bias. If you were there last night, there, you know, it's not a Latino. This is in all cultures of the world, I promise you. In most cultures of the world, do not speak Spanish or those kinds of languages. But uh, I remember about the holy tortilla. You remember that? She was cooking, and there appeared in the tortilla the face of you-know-whom, and, you know, the word gets out, and pilgrims are coming, and when they get close to the house, the last couple kilometers, they're on their knees, crawling and weeping and praying and, you know, making pilgrimage to the holy tortilla. The second time we lived in Australia, at Bondi Beach, there was a fence post. Well, at beaches, things made of wood often change shape. Why? Because you get those winds that blow sand around, And erosion can create some pretty cool patterns. Again, this was the face of the Virgin Mary. It was in the newspapers in Australia, which is not really a very believing place, but it's kind of interesting, and a lot of people believe in that kind of stuff. And, uh, of course, I didn't, and I couldn't see it. I I really couldn't see the pattern. Maybe I just lacked faith. That's possible. Apparitions are not part of the Christian message unless we mean the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Now, closely related to apparitions, necromancy. I may call your attention, um, John, I didn't give the word out, but maybe we could pass this out even while I speak. This is a handout for John Clayton's class, which is after the break, after I finish. I think this this is a really great resource. Or do you have them in the room, John, or am I being presumptuous? Okay. Well, thank you, um, Dave. Yeah, if you can get those out. You you don't need them to hear what I'm saying, but but I think it fits in very well. Necromancy is consulting the dead. In the ancient world, people often wanted to find out the future. Often they wanted to establish contact with the dead. What is necromancy? We'll read about this. It's like Saul and the witch of Endor. What is he doing? What is King Saul trying to do? Do you remember the story? Of course you do. You cannot forget it. No one reads 1 Samuel and forgets the story about the witch. So what happens when Saul goes to the witch, who shall I bring up? And it's Samuel. And what does Samuel say? You know, why have you disturbed me? Because he's in Sheol. He's in the place of rest at that point. Saul wanted to consult him. He wasn't supposed to do that. That was, and the witch thought that she could be executed for that, and he promised her that that would not happen. She is shocked that her conjuring tricks actually seem to have worked. This time, she shrieks, She's clearly not expecting to see Samuel, the prophet who had died sometime before, who was wearing a robe. And I don't understand this. Why would the dead be wearing clothes? 
If you were on the second ghost tour last night, that was one of the early questions. But necromancy, Saul himself had put an end to consulting mediums, and, he, and then hypocritically he goes to um, a medium. He goes to uh, a witch. When I first moved to Sweden, I studied the Bible with a man, he was baptized, whose father had died. He was in great pain. He used to, under, used to go to the cemetery with his recording device to record the voices of his father coming up from the ground. What can I say about that? I didn't hear the voices. Could it be real? I told you I'm a skeptic. But if I throw that out, what about the witch of Endor? Why do both testaments warn us to keep away? If I'm right about what happens after death, all the dead are in the waiting place, Sheol, Hades. No one has been judged yet because Jesus hasn't returned yet. I think one reason, I think there are two, the one I'll mention, one reason we're warned about consulting the dead is that we actually could make contact with the dead. I tend to think that it, it is possible you may not agree. I think it's possible to contact the dead. Both Testaments warn against that. Of course, you could always second-guess yourself, how do I know it's really the dead? Maybe I'm just going crazy. Isn't that more likely? And probably it is more likely. But contact with the dead, necromancy, is forbidden. I lump these two together, apparitions and necromancy, because it has to do with contact with those who are, who are dead. Both Testaments tell us to keep away what does the Bible say about this area, area three, apparitions and necromancy? In short, the Bible says, stay away. Four, astrology, divination, dreams, and prophecy. Astrology, if you're just writing down one. It's about knowing the future. We're so small. We, we're weak. We feel sometimes that life lacks meaning. We're insecure. But through astrology, I would even suggest the so-called gift of prophecy, dreams, and divination, which is trying to ascertain the future by looking at the way the birds are flying or looking at the way the leaves are in the teacup or examining the, the entrails of a dead animal, like the liver. That's called hepatoscopy. I don't doubt any of you have been involved in hepatoscopy, but that was very popular in the ancient world. Hepatoscopy, spelt just like it sounds. You're welcome. I lump these all together because they all concern our attempts to know the future. Instead of leaving the future in God's hands, we need to know. Of course, astrology is completely illogical. Our personal existence begins before birth, right? It's, it's not the sign you're born under. If anything, it's the sign you're conceived under. And I'm not, I'm not here to talk about when you actually became you. That's a complicated topic, and that's not part of this. It's not really a paranormal issue. But our personal existence begins before the point of birth, not at the point of birth. And as you know, the influence of, a, of Jupiter on your body is nothing compared to the pull of that table or the chair or the, your friend sitting next to you has much more of a physical effect on your body. So, Horoscopes are also um, amazingly vague. When they're accurate, it's a matter of luck. I was at a Chinese restaurant last week. I opened up a fortune cookie, and there were four fortunes in it. It's kind of like that. Or if you went to the racetrack, and you probably shouldn't be doing that, but if you bet on every horse to win, overall you'd lose money, you know. I would? Yeah, you would lose money, but you would win at least once. There's nothing miraculous about that. Those who lay stock in astrology are behaving gullibly, and this is illogical, and consistently, the Scriptures portray astrologers as frauds, as inept frauds. And I think of the book of Isaiah especially. They have no access to the future that way. They're just bluffing. We are to leave the future in the Lord's hands. That's another big theme in the book of Isaiah. Well, divination is always with us, whatever the culture. Maybe you weren't into hepatoscopy because you were born later on. People go to gypsies. And how many horror movies begin with someone consulting a gypsy? As though gypsies know more about the spiritual world than we do. And today, to learn about the future, we have consultants. 
Okay, the next area, dreams. In Numbers 12, God speaks to the prophets in dreams. And to a few exceptional persons in both Testaments, God spoke by dreams. But I don't generalize to think that, well, that's how God's going to speak to me. I actually read a book uh, in 2010 that claimed the primary way God speaks to us is in our dreams. And at first, you've got to get used to it, but eventually you'll learn how to interpret your own dreams with the help of his book, I suppose, you know, telling us how to do it, not Freud's on the interpretation of dreams. Could God speak to us in our dreams? Of course. Does he is the question. So it's not so either or. I mean, does he or are you, do you think God is not all-powerful? That's framing the question in a very unfair way. And maybe God knows you're going to dream about something, and providentially he uses that dream to help you. You have a guilty conscience, therefore you had this bad dream. So the next day you say, I have to confess this thing. You know, God uses it, but to say God gave you the dream, I think that's only indirectly true. We have to be careful about that. Of course, some dreams come true. As arch-skeptic Michael Shermer, who I keep bumping into, says, it's a mathematical probability that dreams will come true. The United States, we have, what, 330 million people? And many cattle as well. Okay, now, we have about 330 million people. How many dreams every night? Some of you didn't sleep well last night. Some of you were, were troubled souls. Just need to confess that sin, and, and you'll be freed from it. No, I'm kidding. We don't sleep well. It could be dyspepsia. It could be uh, the person next door was loud. I don't know. Uh, dreams. With hundreds of millions of people having presumably hundreds of millions of dreams, if not billions, how shocking it would be, how surprising it would be if none of those dreams came true. So in a given night around the nation, there should be thousands of dreams that, that feel predictive. Wow, I dreamt it, and it happened just as I dreamt it. And probability-wise, some people are going to have a lot of their dreams come true. There's going to be some people who most of their dreams seem to come true, and they'll be credited as some kind of psychic, or if they're really lucky, a pet psychic. Well, but remember, for every person who, whose dreams seem to come true, you have millions who don't reach that level. For every lottery winner, there are the vast majority of suckers who are making the winners win. We have a, a tendency to remember the exceptions and to forget the failures. So I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in dreams, though I'm not totally against that. I, I, God could work through there, but I, I don't know how I would know if it was from God or if it was just from me. Prophecy. Well, I mentioned the fortune cookies. Bible actually doesn't have fortune cookies, but it has prophecy. And there's a very high standard when it comes to predictions. In the Old Testament, all predictions had to be borne out or uh, the prophet could be executed. In the New Testament, every prophecy was to be weighed, as in 1 Corinthians 14, as in 1 Thessalonians 5. A prophetic message was given, it was weighed, and you had to sort out, is this from God or was this from man? There was no death penalty, though, in the New Testament church. It was a, a less fear-driven society. What does the Bible have to say about Area 4, miraculous guidance, astrology, and so forth? That we should be content to receive guidance from God as we pray, receive counsel from others, and above all, as we study the Word of God. We are to leave the future in God's hands, not take matters into our own hands. And that's the fundamental problem with astrology and this quasi-Christian phenomena that, like it, attempt to ascertain the future. Area 5, demons. There's no clear instance in the entire Old Testament of demons. There's a possible connection between idolatry and the demonic in Deuteronomy 13. You have that Hebrew word, shed, that means hairy or goat, uh, or goat idol, as in Leviticus 17.7. And we know from 2 Chronicles 11 that they worship calf and goat idols. The stories of the demonic were common in the surrounding lands, in Babylonia, in Syria, in Egypt, and so forth. So it's quite surprising that we don't have demon stories in the Old Testament. There was a heightened awareness of the demonic throughout the course of the intertestamental period. 
between the time of the Old and New Testament, when the Jews were in exile in Persia, when the Jews came into contact with uh, the thinking of the Chaldeans and the Zoroastrians, and it's possible, I think it's possible, that some of their ideas were absorbed from outside. That doesn't mean the ideas were false, even if they were recycled or received from outside. So it doesn't constitute a disqualifying contamination. Jesus' body doubtless comprised molecules from other organic beings, and perhaps some of his molecules came from other people. It doesn't mean Jesus wasn't Jesus. Was possession a reality in Old Testament times? It doesn't seem to be. At least I can't find clearly. People always say, what about Saul? Saul was troubled by an evil spirit, and they had to come and play music. Maybe that's possession. Usually it's called a tormentation. Um, I, I don't really see that as a demonic possession. I could be wrong about that. I would like to know what other people think. Is it possible that the Lord was protecting His people, or were those outside the covenant people of God just really superstitious? More on that in Area 6. In the New Testament, I notice that possessions appear only in the early decades. So when does the New Testament kind of open up? We have the, uh, the birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus, and then we have that very small snippet when Jesus is uh, kind of the bar mitzvah age, right? But the next thing we know, he's in his 30s. We see a lot of uh, demons in his ministry, which seems to have lasted three or four years. And we also see demons in the earlier chapters of Acts, but not so much in the later chapters of Acts, and I can't find anything unambiguous in any of the letters. And there's a passage in Revelation, but it's very figurative, and it's drawing on the Old Testament. Could it be that demonic activity was especially acute at the time Jesus came into the world and at the time of his earliest followers, but even in their lifetimes, it subsided? I'm not sure. It seems like that, though. And that would make sense of why exorcism was part of the apostolic mission, Mark 3, 13 and 14. No instructions are given in the letters. It's interesting because the letters tell us about practical Christian living. So why are there, there's no instruction about how to do exorcisms or deal with demons? I mean, were demons no longer active in the 50s and 60s? Did the apostles succeed in mopping up? Did they bind all the demons and send them back? From the stories I've heard and what I've heard last night, it doesn't look like it. There are lots of ideas. Early Christians, some of them held that demons are fallen angels. That is, they were created as morally neutral beings, but they chose to rebel. Could be. That, by the way, is not an original idea. I mean, you can't find that directly stated in the New Testament. Another theory holds that they are the offspring of humans and angels, as in Genesis 6 interpretation. The book of Jubilees, the book of First Enoch, Second Baruch, um, and some of the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about that idea, offspring of humans and angels. Interesting, if humans and angels can, are, you know, are, are fertile, I think of uh, horses and I think of mules. You know, are they actually fertile? It, you know, what Jesus says in Matthew 22 makes me wonder whether that could work. Some early Christians equated demons with the false gods of idolatry as in 1 Corinthians 10. And sometimes the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, translated in the 3rd and 2nd century B.C., uh, the Septuagint translates the word idols as the word demons. The fall of demons in 1st Enoch is thought to have happened before creation. That's 1st Enoch 69. If you have your Ethiopic Old Testament with you, you'll find it there. In Jubilees 10, Noah prays and God imprisons 90% of the demons plaguing mankind. But in this book of Jubilees, he also allows 10% to continue their evil work under their leader, Mastama, or Satan. So the Jews had some very colorful ideas. Their imaginations were working hard in the intertestamental period. They were the enemies of the monks. And when the monastic movement starts really growing in the 4th century, 5th century, these hermits would talk about the warfare they would do with demons. Luther seems to have been tormented by demons. Yet I think today we have a very sloppy demonology. Just as you learn that cool word, angelology, there's demonology. And never forget hepatoscopy. Sloppy demonology today, false personifications of sin. And it's, been, it's through the Christian press, the pop books, oh, I'm suffering with a demon of laziness. Well, maybe you just ignored your alarm clock. You're in a bad habit. Why does it have to be demonic? He has a demon of pride. 
a demon of sexual sin, a demon could be, I have no difficulty believing the demonic is connected with our sin, but where in the Bible does it say this demon is in charge of this sin? In, in the, when the monks were trying to pay attention in the Middle Ages, there's a Latin word, acadia, or they pronounce it acedia, which is when you just can't focus. It's kind of like the ADD of the monastic period. And they believed that that was demonically caused, Achadia, you had to resist it, and this is a form of warfare to resist that. Just like I was reading the Muslim traditions last month. I was reading the Hadith, and I came across a Hadith. Muhammad apparently said, yawning is from Satan. <laughs> keep, keep that in mind, okay, while John is doing the next class. Yawning is from the devil, okay. Well, what is going on here? I think those are false personifications. You don't, you don't have to deny the existence of the spiritual world if you don't believe in demons today. I, and, and this is not just theoretical. Last night we had a number of uh, very interesting, uh, we'll tie it more to my section on ghosts, which we're almost at. But I'll never forget the time I was in London, and this was the second time I lived in Britain. It was in the 90s. And I got a phone call from India. Brother, we need help. We're about to do an exorcism. What advice do you have? And after I said the things I had to say, I said, you know, there's no formula. The Bible doesn't give you the magic words. <laughs> Did I believe in it? No, I was incredibly skeptical. So let's all admit, and I appreciate John Oakes's attitude, that we haven't really thought this thing through. And we should applaud all efforts to make sense of the data. And I appreciate people like John and Foster Stanback and others who have wrestled with these ideas. Are demons even real? Well, Grant says the demonic in turn refers to those structures, both in individual and social life, that claim for themselves an ultimacy they do not possess. That makes sense to me. And through the diabolical misuse of structures, evil realities bring humans into structural bondage. Christ came to set us free. The ultimate Lord cannot be our employer. It cannot be our nation. It cannot be the club that we're part of, or even your church. That would be diabolical. But are demons real? Is the diabolical just an abstraction, or does it have ontological status? I was exposed to this alternate view in the 1990s, and I was intrigued, but it seemed that something was missing. It seems to me these powers are real. They underlie idols and superstition, and that's why we're told to avoid them. But I would admit there is a second biblical response Paul also seems, when you read his section about uh, food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, on the one hand, he says, we don't want to be, you know, supporting the demons. But on the other hand, he seems to be saying, they don't exist at all. Could the truth be somewhere between the two, that they don't fully exist or that their existence is derivative upon our faith in them, which empowers them. And that, by the way, is probably a sub-theme of a good few horror movies. We pay, when we pay homage to these spirits, allowing them to exercise dominion over us, we give them objective existence. But while I'm intrigued by that and I like it, it doesn't explain everything I've seen and heard. Some friends came back from Africa and they had gone into a shop where an idol of witchcraft was on display. They had all looked at that idol, that statue, and they had all felt very strange. Later in the day, one of them was gripped by desire to jump out the hotel window They're on the balcony, like, I really want to jump down. Not suicidally, although it would have been suicide. Weird. And told another one, I'm just, I felt what's going on? I feel like, like something's trying to make me jump. And the second person, I won't name them because I think you may know the people, uh, not in this room though. The second person had said, I too had a desire to jump. And the third one as well, the fourth one, no. But three of them felt like jumping. All of them couldn't help but thinking something happened back in that shop with that idol. Well, what was it? I don't know, but I do know that Christ has exposed the evil powers for what they are, and he has disarmed them, and that means whatever is the truth, we do not need to be controlled by these things. Um, so I have uh, talked about the sloppy demonology, but I would also say that the details of 
exorcism, the details of, yeah, I guess we're kind of into exorcism now. I, I really don't think they match what we see in the New Testament. Exorcisms were highly public. They weren't staged or ambiguous. They took place immediately. They weren't multi-staged, like come back next week and pay another $140 and we'll drive them out even more. And the demons that were in the people didn't blaspheme God. You could almost say they were almost respectful. In Hollywood, what do the demons do? Well, they make your skin turn thin like an onion, and you can see all your veins, and it's kind of green, and sparks come out your nostrils and other places, and the drawers go in and out, and the curtains flap and all this stuff. And they speak in a strange voice. They speak in multiple voices, and they levitate and all this stuff. And certainly, their, their language would cause any hardened sailor to blush. Why don't we see this in the New Testament? Why, when in the presence of apostles or the Lord, do the, the demons almost seem afraid? I wouldn't say worshipful, but in, in the, the Legion passage, Mark 5, the guy, he runs up to Jesus. It's almost like he's worshiping him, and then he says, stay away from me. It's like, it's like he's running towards him, but says, stay away from me. That's kind of the way we are sometimes when we come to Christ. But there's not all this bad language. Is it the same as what happened in the New Testament? I think we need to approach this subject with caution and in the spirit of humility. I believe much of what passes today for exorcism or possession diverges radically from what we read about in the 30s and 40s A.D. And in fact, has much more in common with the occult, the occult aspects of pagan religion, shamanism, voodoo, and so forth. So we need to keep a healthy distance uh, between them and us. Well, what does the Bible say about this area of demons? Virtually nothing in the Old Testament, a lot in the New Testament, nearly nothing in the later documents. We've got to be wary lest we go beyond what is written. Undoubtedly, Satan works through his minions since he's never said to be omnipresent. Satan can't be everywhere at one time. So the idea of delegating, and he's not omniscient either. He needs intel. So the idea that he's organized is logical. Is it true, though? James 1 makes the connection between the demonic and sin, but there is no demon of laziness, demon of anger, and so forth. Such personifications are imaginative and lack solid biblical foundation. We must not go beyond what is written. Area 6, exorcism. I had a, um, a little vignette to share with you, but we heard such cool things last night. But this is someone who's written to me twice about a neighbor who seems to be possessed and is, keeps talking about the dark side and seeing the evil one and doing things like stripping off her clothes and urinating on her friends. And uh, she's someone who is, uh, was in contact with voodoo through her loving boyfriend who impregnated her and then left. And it seems when people have a contact with the occult, later things happen that never happen with those who don't have that contact. So that suggests there is something going on. There's something real. Um, her letter to me, and I had edited it, but still way too long. I can read my response. Alas, dear sister, I don't know what to do. I believe in the demonic. I know much weird behavior is psychotic. It's not always easy to tell the difference between the two. But I know a minister in the Christian church who performed an exorcism. This is a guy I met recently, and if you want the account, see me. I have one copy left. Would you like me to put you in contact with him? Lateral. You know, it's the lateral. <laughs> I have his details at home, but right now I'm in California. At any rate, I hope that, that, uh, that makes you think a little bit there. It only leaves one question. Could a Christian be possessed? We see the possessions uh, from Matthew 4, I guess, up to Acts 16. Could a Christian be possessed? How would that square with 1 Corinthians 10.13? I would think not very well. Would God really let his people be tempted beyond what they could bear? On the other hand, I do know churches where members, and these are even in, most of us are members of the churches of Christ, where members seem to be possessed by demons. And they say, well, I know that, but it seems real. And some kind of exorcism ceremony is performed, and then people go away free. Ghosts and reincarnation, seven. What's the, what's the drop-dead time, John? <laughs> Foster? Okay, well, I can, I can honor that easily. Ghosts and reincarnation. I link these together because both of these views hold that the dead come back. 
Reincarnation, we can dismiss. It's an Eastern religious notion. It's from the idea that ultimately the universe is impersonal. We'll be reborn and reborn until we're released, and then ultimately our soul will join the world's soul, and we will lose our individual existence. So if you believe in reincarnation, you don't really believe in a personal God. The two are antithetical. They don't fit. I think there's also snob appeal because no one, after all, says, in a former life, I cleaned toilets in the 1920s in Latvia. It's, no, I was a king. You know, I was Napoleon. I was Alexander the Great. I was Marie Antoinette. Or if you're Asian, I was Genghis Khan. I don't know if I would want to have been him, but it's, there's a tremendous snob appeal. But I do know, I do have one friend whose wife seemed to be in reincarnation. She had information she couldn't have known otherwise. She had recurring dreams, including a number in the dream that was tattooed onto her. And when they did research after the recurring dreams, they found, and she was Jewish, they found someone with that same number who'd been at Auschwitz. And all the things that she dreamt about were things that that person had experienced. Now, could that be chance? I don't know. It's hard to dismiss that. I'm not sure I want to. But things like that trip us up, don't they? Yes. <laughs> it's easier, I think, when we deal with go. I mean, so reincarnation's on biblical. Hebrews 9:27. no way. There's no reincarnation. But the dark forces are doing some things that are very strange. When it comes to ghosts, I never forget my grandmother in Nova Scotia who saw the young woman in her white robe in the light of the moon walking up and down in the cemetery. This is in the 1890s. My mother-in-law, my wife's, she's British. Um, my mother-in-law bought a home from a woman who died in the bathtub. So every time she took a bath, she got freaked out. So she just wanted to take showers. But then she had seen the movie Psycho. And so to this day, though it's been decades, she takes very fast showers. And some of you relate to that. Even though you're very intelligent people, you don't want to take chances. I was in a castle once in Ireland that was haunted. I've been in a few places that are supposed to be haunted, and I, I don't really believe in that stuff. The next morning, the most sober woman in our group, I don't mean we were drinking Guinness. I mean, I mean she, she's not someone to get sucked in. She said, I can't believe it. I saw the ghost last night, clear as could be, walking from here to here in this room. And we all said, you know, you know are you taking medication? No. Okay, that's not it. Was it one of the employees? No. And we asked the questions, and ultimately, I don't know, and I didn't see the shadow people last night. Ghosts normally roam in our popular thought because of a lack of closure. Justice cannot be dispensed, say, without the death of the guilty. This seems to me to ignore the fact that God is the judge. Vengeance is his. There'll be a day of judgment. It doesn't have to work out on this planet. There's a biblical truth that's being minimized. If we believe in the Bible, I would say there's no need to believe in ghosts. But aren't they affirmed in the Bible? Matthew 14, Mark 6, didn't this, the disciples say, it's a ghost. Yes, they were superstitious. Jesus never says there are ghosts or there aren't ghosts. He just calms them down, which is the more immediate pastoral issue. You, but you say in Luke 24, he says, if I were a ghost, would I, be, would I have flesh and bones and be eating this fish? He's, he's trying to tell him he's not a ghost. He's not commenting on whether there are ghosts or not. But that doesn't mean there aren't spirit beings. And those aren't necessarily the same as demons. We've got to think clearly. We've got to separate by category. The spirits of the dead, if I read my Bible correctly, do not come back. So if you've had a ghost experience, what is it? I don't know, but that doesn't mean it's a human. In the Bible, the dead all go to Sheol. New Testament is called Hades. It's a Greek word for the Hebrew Sheol, but it's the same place. No one comes back. We die. We live once. We'll be judged. We don't get a second chance as far as the Bible says. There's no do-over. We wait in the waiting place until the last resurrection of the judgment. The spirits of the dead don't come back. Haven't ghosts been discovered in old houses and ships? Yes, I have many comments on that, but I'm going to skip those for sake of time. 
What does the Bible say about Area 7 ghosts? I mean, what about that weird passage in, in Job? I mean, Job 4, you know, about the spirit. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. Well, it's a po- piece of poetry. It doesn't really say there are ghosts. But haven't we experienced that? Maybe so. Here's what I, where I land. The evil one knows what will freak us out. We're going to be more drawn into his domain when other humans are involved. Our most powerful emotions swirl around our connections with our fellow man, especially people with whom there are issues unresolved or those who've died. Our fellow man, whether living or dead. And so I believe there's something in the tall man with the top hat. I would offer as a provisional interpretation, this is something evil, it's something demonic, something diabolical, playing on our fears that something's happening, but it's not actually human. Because that would, in my understanding, contradict what the Old and New Testament says about where the dead are. The dead are not roaming around the planet. See, I'm not discounting spiritual experience, but I cannot believe that that is human, post-mortem human spiritual experience. Jesus came to destroy our fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. That means a true believer need never fear ghosts. Oh, my. Area 8 was miracles. You can look at that later on your own. Briefly, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-11, the Bible says a lot. But miracles never show the one doing it is saved. They did have implications for the veracity of any message being given, provided the message didn't contradict previous revelation. But miracles, which are claimed by all religions, all religions, especially prophecy and healing and tongues, all religions claim these, Christian and non-Christian, really um, very common paranormal manifestations are, are, are not conclusive in terms of whether someone is saved or not. We should not get sucked in. And this brings us to the last area, area nine, out-of-body or near-death experiences. You know the scenario. Uh, you, your visual field shrinks, and so you, see, you see, seem to be looking down a tunnel. There's an activation of memories, a projection of expectations, a sense of weightlessness. I leave this more to the class on science and the paranormal, but I do know that when scientists have studied these experiences, about half of them People experience wonderful things. My friends are there to meet me and my grandmother, always the grandmother, not usually the grandfather. They're there to meet me and it's wonderful, but the other half experience horrible things, demons with pitchforks and Satan and lakes of fire. And I kind of wonder if the Muslims dream when they had that experience of Jesus Christ or they're being welcomed by Muhammad. In other words, I think it's highly culture-specific. One suspects that the future one sees is wholly dependent on one's worldview. Does a Hindu die and then come back and admit that Jesus was on the throne? Maybe from time to time, but that's not what I've experienced. Now, I know I have a friend who, who studies this professionally, and he says that when people have that experience on the table where they're floating up and they get information about the affair their wife is having with a next-door neighbor, there's no way they could have known that. Maybe yes, maybe no, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. I'm highly skeptical. Not all who believe in these experiences are schizophrenic or deceivers. My Swedish teacher died on the table and had this experience, and she was a very level-headed person. Michael Persinger is a behavioral neuroscientist who does temporal lobe stimulation. He puts a helmet on your head and a sword. No, it sounds like a song. A magnetic helmet that creates hallucinations. The temporal lobes are bombarded with electromagnetic pulses. I know someone personally who did this. When those magnetic fields were uh, pushed against his brain in that way, he sensed a presence in the room. The pulses are associated with opiate-like experiences of spinning and floating. And particularly when they come on the right side, it causes terrifying experiences of devil, the aliens, and even hell. Very common. What does the Bible say about Area 9 out-of-body experiences? Nothing. The jury is still out, though, as far as I'm concerned. But as I warned you before, I'm a skeptic. I think the jury's out. In conclusion, I've offered a number of biblical perspectives on the paranormal. The Bible affirms the paranormal, in a way, though with a number of important qualifications. 
I offered biblical perspectives on several areas, aliens, angels, apparitions, astrology, demons, exorcism, ghosts, miracles, out-of-body experiences, and I've done it in an orderly way, or at least in an alphabetically orderly way. Uh, you can learn a lot more about this through the podcast I've done on these topics at my second website. You'll learn even more through the classes yet to come this morning, this afternoon. There may be overlap, which is good. I got to go first, and thus, if anyone says that something I've already said, I can accuse them of plagiarism. But you know the truth of the matter. Three angles on this, psychological, uh, scientific, and biblical, I think give us a stereoscopic vision. It allows us to see things from more than one angle. It gives us depth perception. I'm honored to teach with these brothers and sister, and I think it's wonderful. Finally, I have encouraged a healthy, balanced skepticism. We do not have all the answers, though there are probably more answers than we've realized. Sarcasm, if we're sarcastic, can suggest to a non-believer that we don't believe in spiritual reality. I would be careful with that. Dismissiveness could suggest to a non-believer that we don't believe in spiritual reality, which makes us hypocrites. Like not checking one's sources, such an attitude may undermine our credibility or worse, discredit the faith. And so skepticism needs to be balanced with faith, critical thinking with openness. There's much we don't know, and there may also be much in Scripture we don't yet understand. Let's continue to learn together. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on the paranormal. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.